Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. And let's look, uh, first of all, as we typically do, at uh, some of the poetic devices that are employed in this psalm. Uh, there are quite a few, and so I'll just kind of walk down through uh, the important ones with you. Uh, starting in verse 1, what picture do we see in verse 1? Okay, shepherd and... What's that? Okay, give ear, yes, okay. Flock, all right, the thing about the cherubim, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, all right, so if God is described as the shepherd, what's, what's the idea of that? Leading and the other things that a shepherd would do, right? Okay, and then they're, if they're described as a flock, they're the ones that are being led. Uh, we'll come back to the cherubim thing when I kind of go back through the passage for you here in a few minutes. Uh, right, so we see in verse 1, Joseph, we see in verse 2, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. So, I think he's just noting prominent tribes, uh, potentially. Um, depending on the historical setting of this psalm, it is an interesting thing that he would mention all of them together. Uh, because they had been divided since the time of Solomon, and both of them had separately fallen into exile in God's judgment, and, um, yeah, there's a lot of things there that I think are worth exploring, so we'll talk more about that. It's a good question. How about verse 3, 7, and 17? There is a kind of a word picture here. Face to shine upon us. Face to shine upon us, okay? What does that mean? Okay, favor, what else? Anything, anything else come to mind? Okay, yeah. Paying close attention, okay. Yeah, um, there are some translations that render it as smile on us, and I think, while not wrong, I think it's an incomplete picture of kind of what's going on here. Um, there is a kind of a, a background to the word that is, I believe, connected with the idea of kindling of a fire. Um, and in that, probably specifically the idea of brightness. And so um, there's some interesting tie-ins to God leading Israel in his presence with them. We'll talk more about that as we continue. So that's a, a picture that's repeated a number of times here in this psalm. How about verse 4? Is there a picture here or a poetic device in verse 4? Okay. Yeah, when he says angry with the prayer of your people, ultimately he's angry with the people who are giving the prayer, right? So there's a I forget um, the specific term, but where you have a, a part or an associated thing representing what the ultimate focus of the, of the, of the poetic phrase is. Um, so if you said uh, you're angry with the voice of your child, you're not really angry that they're talking, 
you're angry with something about that person. Uh, verse 5. Okay, we have bread of tears and drinking tears. Okay, are they literally eating and drinking tears? No, but what is potentially going on? They have many of them, and it's basically that's what their life consists of at that point, right? Okay, uh, verse 8 and also verse 14, we have a picture here. A vine from Egypt, okay? And who do, who do we think the vine represents? Israel, yeah, God's people, okay. Um, and then it is interesting that it goes from being the vine in verse 8, and then it is described as the shoot and the sun in verse 15 and 17, which I kind of jumped ahead and gave you the answer for that one, right? But it's interesting that he switches between this idea of vine or shoot and then this idea of sun. So is the sun parallel to a branch on the vine is the sun. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a mistranslation of the word. It's just interesting that he's sort of mixing these metaphors. But there's the idea of the offspring of the plant and the offspring of parents um, that are both representative of Israel. How about verse 13? Yeah. So what would the boar potentially represent if the vine represents Israel and the boar is eating the vine? Invaders. Okay, yeah. Sin, yeah, I think it's their sin leads to the boar, the invaders coming in and attacking them and taking them away and, and devouring them so that there's a lot of parallels between this and what we see in Isaiah, this idea that God strikes them with judgment and all that's left is like a little stump of a root. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Uh, how about verse 16? Okay. But we notice that it's not ultimately about stuff in the land because it says they perish at the rebuke of, their, of your countenance. So who's the they? Again, the Israelites are experiencing God's judgment. So like you would uh, burn uh, branches from a tree that didn't bear fruit or cut down if you have something like I have some red raspberries in the back that always get these little bugs in them. So at some point I'm going to cut them down and get rid of them. That's the same sort of picture that we have here in this passage. And then uh, verse 17. Okay. I think you even prayed something along those lines, right, Paul? That God's hand would be upon. Okay. And when we say, let your hand be upon, what do we mean? And what does the Bible mean? Well, it is true that Jesus is described as the right hand of God, but if we go back to the Old Testament, we have this phrase, let your hand be upon, what, what's, what's sort of the idea behind that? Okay, anointing, blessing, what were we saying? Guide, leading, okay, yeah. Protection. So there's a number of ways that it's used, or at least that we use it. I think in context, it probably is most closely tied with the idea of blessing here in this passage, because there's a lack of blessing, and they're asking for God's blessing again. So, uh, some repeated thoughts. We have the idea of save us, or shine on us, or deliver us, those kind of ideas. 
We see that in verse 2, 3, 7, 14, 17, and 19. We see this idea that God is a powerful God. He's described as, um, in verse 2, stir up your power. Verse 4, Lord God of hosts. Uh, Verse 7, God of hosts. Um, Verse 8, all the things that he does with the vine in the past. Verses 8 through 13. In verse 14, again, God of hosts. Verse 17, when he says, let your hand be upon and the one whom you have made strong. God, by his power, has given power to this one. Okay? And then verse 19 again, Lord God of hosts. So, Lord God of hosts is a description of God that stresses his power and strength, that he rules over armies and leads them into battle and all those sorts of things. So, we have the idea of save us or shine on us. We have the idea of God being a powerful God, the Lord of hosts. And we have an idea of punishment or sorrow in verse 4. How long will you be angry? Verse 5, the thing about bread of tears and drinking tears. Verse 6, object of contention, enemies laugh. Verse 12, broken down the hedges. Verse 13, the boar from the forest eats it away. Verse 16, it's burned with fire, it's cut down. So we'll talk about how all this picture works together in a moment. We're going to say what is the structure. It starts out describing the powerful shepherd, verses 1 through 3, who is angry with his people, verses 4 through 7 which then leads to this picture of a fruitful vine in decay, verses 8 through 13, and then finishes with this vision or expectation of a restored vine that is uh, once again fruitful in 14 through 19. What type of psalm do we see this as? Yeah, I think it's a lament, because we have the classic phrase, how long, Lord, is this going to happen? Descriptions of problems that God needs to fix, appealing to God and his power. All of these are common characteristics of lament. So truths about God that we see. Okay, God is righteous. Where do you see that? Okay, like one specific verse perhaps. I, I agree with you that it definitely seems to be implied. I just want to want us to make the connection. Wh- where do we get a glimpse that God is holy or righteous? Look at verse 1. He is shepherd of Israel, but even the end of the verse, what is he? He's enthroned above the cherubim. Cherubim are associated with holiness, right? Ark of the covenant, all those sorts of things. So do we have a righteous God? Good, okay. Um, what else do we see about God? His sovereignty, okay, in what way? He's mentioned as the God of armies four times in this section. Okay. Implying that the people here have been decimated by an invading army, and they're acknowledging God as being sovereign over their enemies. Yeah. Okay. We tend to think of Lord of hosts as being of hosts that are on our side, but the reality is, um, C.S. Lewis did a great thing on this. He said, is, is Aslan on our side? And they said something about sides. He's on his own side. So the question is not, are, is he on our side? The question is, are we on his side, right? And that's the question that I think. We want God to be on our side, but really he wants us to be on his. And if we're not, like the Israelites are not in much of this psalm, he's still the Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, but they're not necessarily in our, for our benefit. Okay, good. Um, other things we see about God from this passage. 
Powerful. Okay. Okay. Anything about God's... Oh, yeah, Rob. Okay, good. And even when we don't deserve it. So there's an element of compassion there as well, right? What about us? What, what truths do we see about us? Mike, do you have a thought? You look like you have a thought about it. No? No? Okay. Louise? A long time ago. When I used to No, that's fine. That's fine. What, um, what truths do we see about us in terms of if we find ourselves in a similar situation to the people of Israel, what is the response that this... Eric? Okay, yeah, okay. But at the very least, that's where we need to end up, calling out to God for help, okay? That's one of the things I think we see here. Okay. Sure. Okay, yeah, so appealing to God in who he is and appealing with a degree of fervency and a right attitude toward him, okay, good. Um there is this implication of, especially in verses 18 and 19, revive us and we'll call upon your name, cause your face to shine upon us and we'll be saved. There is a seeking of God's work of reviving, bringing about repentance. We tend to think of repentance as being something that we need to do and then God will respond to us. But the way that he's phrasing it here is basically anticipating God's sovereign work such that they have a right response, such that God's blessing returns to them, which is a little bit different from the way we normally think about it. All right, so let's, let's work back through this psalm, Psalm 80, okay? Here's what I would say the main point of Psalm 80 is. May God smile on his fruitful vine again. So here's the picture. You plant a grapevine. My neighbor has one in the backyard. Um, if we had two of them, we might have grapes. As it is, it just grows over everything. Um, but the picture that we have here is you have a vine. It's bearing fruit. And then something happens, and the, the vine is cut down. It's burned with fire. It's eaten by wild animals. And all that you got left is the little stump, the base of the vine. Looks like it's dead. Looks like nothing is coming back. That's the picture of Israel as they are cast into exile, as they are experiencing God's judgment from invading armies coming and attacking them, and in the context of that being the background, you have a psalm like Psalm 80 where they cry out to God and say, Lord, restore us. So much like I was saying we see in the book of Isaiah, here is this great tree, it's cut down, all that's left is a stump. In the book of Isaiah, it points largely to Jesus being the shoot, the offspring of David, the, shoot of, the root of Jesse, who is the one who springs forth and becomes a great tree, again, from that stump. But here, the emphasis is not so much on Jesus, although there's connections, but rather more to God's people being restored and regrowing from the root that God has established. There's places in the Old Testament where it seems like the very existence of Israel is in jeopardy, or we, should, we could say even the existence of God's people. Noah and the ark. If God didn't have Noah build the ark, all of humanity would be wiped out and he'd have to start over, right? That moment when Moses intercedes for the people because God says, we can wipe the slate clean and I'll give, I'll give your offspring and they can be my people. And, and Moses says, no, I'm going to intercede because here's all these promises that you've made. God tests him to bring about that result. Um, 
there uh, even later, potentially before this psalm is written, uh, you have the appearance of David's line being cut off and the question of whether there's going to be any remnant of God's people left to serve him. As we see in Isaiah, there is this promise of a remnant, but, but just this question of, is the very existence of the nation of Israel in jeopardy? And so much like that uh, vine, I mean, it's one thing if you've got this huge vine and there's a little bit of dieback over winter, you're like, no big deal, it'll, it'll keep growing. Uh, but if all you've got left is the stump, and you say, what if there's a really hard frost and even the stump dies? That could be it. And that's sort of, I think, the, the feeling or the expectation that you find when you look at a psalm like this from the perspective of the people who have experienced God's judgment, the people of Israel. And so when they find themselves in this situation, the right response to God's judgment is to call out to God for help. And we talked, we'll get to verses 18 and 19 about the repentance aspect of it. But the psalmist starts out by appealing to God and his character. God is one who cares for his people. He's the shepherd of Israel who leads them like a flock. Think about Jesus' compassion, even on the people of Jerusalem and Judea. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to discredit his ministry. They're rejecting him. The crowd is following him for fickle and selfish and shallow reasons. And yet Jesus says, I have compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Exact same situation here potentially several hundred years before Jesus comes, in which the people are scattered and they call out to God as the shepherd of Israel, which kind of echoes back to what we saw at the end of Psalm 78, where God chooses David as servant. He's shepherding the people Israel. There's sort of this potentially expectation that's going to continue. And then you have bad king after bad king after bad king after bad king. God's judgment falls. Where's the shepherd? Clearly not in all these human kings because they've been hirelings and false shepherds and failed over and over again. So now what do we need to do? We need to appeal to God as the true and ultimate shepherd. Uh, and just by way of application, in the New Testament, God is still the shepherd. So we talk about pastor so-and-so of a church. There's a very real sense in which any pastor of a church is an under-shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. It's his church. It's not my church. It's not any other pastor's church. Jesus is the shepherd. He just has people that are, you know, doing ministry on his behalf and serving uh, as sort of visible representatives, not in the Pope kind of way, but, but visible representatives of the sort of ministry that Jesus would do, if, would do if he were among us, to a greater or lesser extent, as far as how diligent pastors are about that work. But ultimately, our cry for help when we have sinned and experienced God's judgment needs to be to God as the shepherd. And how is he described? The one who leads Joseph like a flock, the one who is before all these other tribes, verse 2. Let's talk for a moment about this phrase, enthroned above the cherubim. Um, there is this, this fascinating association uh, with the idea of him being enthroned above the cherubim um, that c goes back to... Um, it goes back to the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. There's these cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and God says in Exodus, I don't have the reference in front of me at the moment, um, in Exodus, you'll approach me and I'll speak to you from this place. And there's several other places in Psalms and in the prophetic books in which God is described as the one who's enthroned above the cherubim, and not particularly the cherubim in heaven, although that's also true, but the ones associated with the Ark of the Covenant, these these 
figures that they have on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place of God's presence with them. And that's where I was going to say this idea of causing your face to shine upon us, verse 3. We, we want to disconnect it from a sense of place. You're at the Coney Island and somebody smiles at a little kid because they're doing something cute, right? There's no sense of place. It's just a thing that happens wherever, right? Whereas this, I think, given verse 1, is God is the one who is with his people, visibly in the Ark of the Covenant. And then God is the one who brings blessing to his people because he is with them. And so I think if we, if we split those two ideas up, it's sort of this free-floating well, God, wherever I am in the world, just sort of smile on me and all's good, right? It just becomes a very sentimental, empty sort of thing. Whereas what this is saying is God, with his people, blesses his people. Now, think back to uh, the end of Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses. What's going on there? If you keep the covenant... Here's all the blessings. If you reject the covenant, here's all the curses. What did they do? They rejected the covenant, so they received all the curses. And yet there is hope. And this is where people get into arguments about where the covenant's conditional or unconditional. And I think probably the better way of thinking of it is God never breaks his promises even when people don't fulfill their end of the bargain, right? And that's why I think there's yet hope for all the things that God said were going to happen with Israel to happen, even in the millennial kingdom, because ultimately it's God who secures the promises, not people in their fickleness and unfaithfulness. Think about that passage, and I think it's Timothy, where it says, we can deny him, but he cannot deny himself. God remains faithful, right? So God does not change even if people change. God keeps his promises. He promised to judge them if they disobeyed. They disobeyed, so he judged them. If they turn back to him, he promised to bless them. And that's sort of the expectation and hope of a psalm like this one. And so then there is this call not only that he's the God who cares and the God who's holy and exalted, but also God who's powerful, as we were talking about. Verse 2, stir up your power and come to save us. Notice it's not go find power and come to save us because God doesn't need to add anything to his power. It's arouse yourself. You're over here. All you have to do is sort of stand up and come help us, right? And then there can be verse 3, restoration, causing your face to shine on us and we will be saved. If God smiles on his people in the context of his holiness, among them dwelling with them, as they repent, we'll get to that in verses 18 and 19, there can be restoration, salvation, and blessing once again. But before you get there, there is an acknowledgement of where they're at right now. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? There's places in the Old Testament where God says the heavens will be as brass. It's like you send up your prayer and it hits it and falls right back down. Why? When they offered prayers that were insincere and hypocritical and they didn't love God and they were pursuing idolatry, it didn't matter how many prayers they offered up to God, how much incense they burned. There could be rivers of blood, mountains of animals sacrificed. It did not matter. God would not hear them because their hearts weren't in it. And so there is this recognition that God is angry with the prayer of his people. How long? Verse 5, you've fed them with the bread of tears and made them to drink tears in large measure. 
Uh, there's a spot, I think it's in Isaiah chapter 30, where it talks about the uh, water of affliction. Same kind of idea. There, idolatry and disobedience leads them to sorrow. We see a parallel to this in uh, 1 Timothy, where it says, those who have a desire to get rich hastily have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And our idolatry, we think, well, I don't worship idols like the Israelites did, so I'm safe. I think we should be a lot more concerned about what it says in 1 Timothy 5, because we love money and seek it at all costs in our society, and it brings us sorrow. And in the same way, we may experience what it says here in verse 5, bread of tears, tears in large measure that are drunk. Also, there is a, a lowering of the status of his people among their surrounding nations. You made it an object of contention, and our enemies laugh. Again, the plea, verse 7, O God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Then the author of the, Psalms, the psalm here goes back and says, let's think about all the things that God did. God transplanted this vine. It was growing in Egypt. It was doing all right. There was a lot. It was a big, strong vine. He transplants it into the land of Canaan. But then what happens? Well, to get ready to transplant it, he clears the ground. There's deep root. It fills the land so big that the mountains are covered with its shadow, the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. The branch is spreading out and filling the land of Canaan. But... Verse 12, why have you broken down its hedges so that anybody can come by and pick the fruit? Why does the boar from the forest eat it away? Well, the psalmist doesn't specifically say, but we know from the rest of Scripture why God takes them from this glory under Solomon and all these other kings and casts them down because they turned away from God. And so then we see the expectation at the end of the chapter O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Not because they deserve it. Not because they haven't sinned, because clearly they have. But because it is the vine which your right hand has planted, the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. Verse 17, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. And there's the acknowledgement in the middle, verse 16. It's burned with fire, it's cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. God's just judgment on sin has fallen on them, but the reason for restoration is not because we were perfect, because clearly they weren't. The reason for restoration is, God, this is the work that you started, finish it. So, then we come to verses 18 and 19. And it says, Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we'll call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. So verse 18 is this expectation that there will not be a turning away if God restores them. There's a need for God to revive them, to, to give them life again, and we will call upon your name. Um we get into arguments about is salvation man's work, God's work, some combination of the two. The reality is if God doesn't do his work, there's no right response from us. I think that's what's highlighted in this verse. But there is a commitment on the part of the people who are praying to God here to say, you restore us and we're not going to turn away from you again. We've learned our lesson. There's that passage in Isaiah where it says, never again will they rely on the one who struck them, but only on the Lord God of Israel. And a few chapters later, basically, 
you will reject your idols and not turn back to them. And so the test of whether we've genuinely and truly repented, I think, is how quickly we run back to the sin we say we've repented from. Um, But again, this call, verse 19, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. This is part of the blessing that um, Aaron was supposed to give to the people regularly in the context of their worship. Cause your face to shine upon us. We'll be blessed. We'll be saved. We'll be helped. So there is, I think, an implication here of a restoration to the right worship of God that was described when Aaron was the priest centuries before would be then associated with God's ongoing blessing of them even long after, despite their sin, despite all that they had been through. So, again, the point of this psalm is, may God smile in His fruitful vine again. From a human perspective, there's not much hope of things improving. They've been cut off, scattered to the four corners of the earth. Uh, They have no temple, they have no king, they have nothing, right? But... Turning to God in a right attitude of repentance, asking for God's help to revive them and restore them and to bless them once more, they can receive salvation. They can receive deliverance. This only comes through God, but there has to be a a movement on their part. So practical application, what does this look like? Uh, I think where it intersects with our daily experience today is this. You and I will encounter people in our own families or um, wherever who it appears, as best we can tell, this person was a genuine believer. And then it seems suddenly one day something happens, they walk away. Now, what we tend to jump to is this discussion of did so-and-so lose salvation did so-and-so, were they never a Christian to begin with? But a psalm like this clearly shows that there can be, this is not really geared individually, but if we were to apply it individually, in this span of history, you have a nation that's set apart to God and yet does all these terrible things and falls under God's judgment for a long stretch of time. Is it still God's people? That's the question. Today, if you have someone who appears to be a Christian and then not, we should urge such a person to follow the pattern of this psalm. And ultimately, that's what church discipline is supposed to accomplish in the context of the local church. The goal is not put the person out of the church so we can wipe our hands clean and say, we're done with so-and-so. The point is restoration. The point of this psalm is restoration. So the connection for us is, when you encounter that person who grew up in church, went to Christian school, looked like they made a genuine profession of faith, did all these things for God apparently, and then walks out the door one day, we need to pray We need to urge repentance. We need to have hope that God is able to restore such a person in light of a psalm like this instead of immediately jumping to try to understand a situation that we only see one narrow slice of their life. There's a very real sense in which um, until you come to the end of your life or go through some great 
test of faith, no one really knows if your faith is real. So think about Paul. Paul says in Philippians, I press on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's not until he's basically on his deathbed, he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. And we want to say, yeah, so-and-so is a believer because of whatever, way back here, long before their lives are over. Or here, when they're not following God the way they're supposed to. Or here, where we're not really sure. And a psalm like this, I think, urges us to say we should do less of individually trying to assess the condition of someone's heart. I don't say have no opinion about it. I don't say never think about it. But spend less time trying to assess is so-and-so a Christian, is so-and-so not a Christian, and more time praying for God to restore people back to fellowship with Him who appear to have genuinely trusted in Him at some point in their lives. There's also a warning here in a passage like this for us. If Israel, God's people, who experienced so much of His blessing for so much of their history, turned away from God to the extent that they can describe their existence as being like a bare stump of a vine that used to fill the land to the heights of heaven and overshadow the cedar trees, and all that's left is a stump in the desert. What about us? I think the admonition in the New Testament where it says, let the one who thinks he stands take heed so he does not fall, it is very easy for us in pride to say, yeah, I prayed a prayer whenever. I've been in church my whole life. Look at all these things I did for God 20 years ago. Whatever it might be, God doesn't so much care about what you did 20 years ago. He cares about the condition of your heart right now. And if the condition of your heart, as you say, ah, things are not the way I expected them to be. Things are not great at all. Look at a psalm like this. There is hope for restoration to God's favor if we approach Him the right way in repentance and obedience. And that hope extends to all these other people that we know. So whether it's you, whether it's somebody that you know, whether it's an entire group of people that you say, what happened? The fact that we have a psalm like this in the Scriptures points us to say, God can restore people God can, yes, maybe someone never knew God. That's a very real possibility. Maybe he needs to save that person. Fine. This is not so much about that. This is instead about those who identified as God's people, were designated as God's people, and then went their own way. What happens next? This psalm holds out the possibility of restoration and blessing, even despite all those things having happened. So let's go now to our... Time of prayer, getting some prayer requests here.